Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I would like to welcome you to our class today where we're going to be covering the four stages of enlightenment, the ten fetters, and the seven factors of enlightenment. Today's a day where you can really start to understand how do you actually attain enlightenment as part of Gautama Buddha's teachings and how can you kind of plot these this personal progress towards the goal of enlightenment. So we're going to be discussing this today in our class, starting with the 10 fetters. Then we're going to help you understand how to eliminate these one by one. So we're going to be discussing what the actual fetters are in detail and how to actually eliminate each of the individual 10 fetters. Then discuss how through eliminating these fetters and actually thinning them out, you can progress through the four stages of enlightenment to actually attain the final stage of enlightenment. And then as part of that progression, a practitioner is going to need the seven factors of enlightenment to really fine tune the mind and bring it to the middle. So it's important that a practitioner understands the seven factors of enlightenment in detail. So we've got a lot of topics to cover today, a lot of really in-depth conversation. So definitely would like to welcome you, whether you've been attending regularly or this is your first time, because this is a great opportunity to start learning because next week we're going to be starting chapter one of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And the content that we're covering now is in chapter three of this book, but we usually cover these topics and others as part of that class, but we're doing this special class just to really dive into these particular topics of chapter three because they're so important as you plot your steps and as you start this journey towards enlightenment, it's good to understand the goal. Because if you're going to travel to a city and you needed to go from wherever you are now to some unknown city that you've never been to before, you kind of would like to know what that city's like and some of the things that are there so that as you arrive and you get closer and closer, you can plot your steps of how to actually get to that city. And once you're at that city, it would be nice to know that you're there. So that's what the 10 fetters are. That's what the four stages of enlightenment are. And that's what the seven factors of enlightenment are is the 10 fetters are essentially the steps of kind of plotting how to move forward to this goal of enlightenment. And then the four stages of enlightenment are essentially helping you to understand what you're going to experience 
as you arrive to this destination or even though it's not a destination but you understand the analogy that you'll understand that okay where are you in this progress and progression this journey towards enlightenment and then what the seven factors of enlightenment are going to do is it's going to help you along this journey to really fine-tune and make sure that you're actually arriving to the goal of enlightenment so that's what we're planning to discuss today and I, again, would just like to welcome you for attending, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom. And as you have questions throughout our conversation and our discussion today, you can post those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators, James and Bassam, will help you to ensure that they get asked during the class, and then I'll answer them during the class. But if you're in Zoom, you have the added feature of electronically raising your hand, and you can ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and get started because we have a lot to cover today. The first thing that I would like to discuss is the 10 fetters. The 10 fetters are 10 individual aspects of the mind that need to be eliminated from the mind in order to attain enlightenment. These are also called the taints, or another way to think of these are the pollution of the mind. These are the things that are part of the mind that actually keep it in the unenlightened state. With these 10 fetters in the mind, the mind isn't going to experience enlightenment. Even if there's just one of these fetters in the mind, the mind's not going to experience enlightenment. So these all need to be eliminated from the mind. In order to eliminate them, you need to first understand what each one of them are, and you need to understand the approach to practicing the teachings in order to change the condition of the mind and move these out of the mind through elimination of these 10 fetters. In order to eliminate the 10 fetters, as I've been discussing in our previous classes, a practitioner would first need to understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the natural law of gamma, the three wholesome roots or the three poisons and a lot of other teachings that we go through in this group learning program and in the book developing a life practice the path that leads to nirvana all of these are foundational teachings for someone just starting out i would suggest that you start out with the three universal truths the four noble truths the eightfold path the five precepts which includes developing a meditation practice. That's the real core of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And what those teachings and those practices will help you to do is will help you move the mind closer and closer to what we call the jhanas that we discussed last week. And as the mind develops these practices more and more, once the mind gets into the jhanas, that's the time to start focusing on the 10 fetters because you wouldn't be able to just selectively go in and eliminate these fetters, perhaps right now, if you're just starting out your journey and you haven't really developed a life practice with these foundational core teachings that I just mentioned. These foundational core teachings help to establish wisdom, moral conduct, mental discipline, it also helps to build concentration and it also helps to really soften the mind and get it to a point where it's ready to release these fetters or these taints or this pollution. 
One of the other ways to think of the 10 fetters, and the reason why we use this word fetter is what a fetter is, is something that's got you kind of bound into something. Some people refer to it as like a ball in a chain. So that's essentially what these fetters are, is they've got the mind trapped into this cycle of rebirth where there's continuous rebirth as long as these fetters are there. And we call them taints, and taints is kind of more like a pollution of the mind. So with this background information, I can now share with you what these individual fetters are and how to remove them. And I'm going to be stopping every so often to give you a chance to ask any questions to clarify what these fetters are and any questions that you might have around what I'm sharing. The fetters are separated into the lower fetters and the higher fetters. And when we talk about the four stages of enlightenment, you understand why that is. But let's just talk about the individual fetters and how to remove them. The first fetter is referred to as personal existence view. And once again, you wouldn't be able to just eliminate this one right off the bat in the first week or even the first month or two of learning and practicing the teachings because you need to build that foundational life practice first of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, along with this well-developed meditation practice for many, many, many months, maybe even a year or two before you actually move into really eliminating these. But now that we're going to be talking about these fetters, you can kind of be thinking about this because there's going to be situations even early in practice where you can start kind of working in the direction of elimination of the fetters. Even without having reached the jhanas, you can still have an awareness of these fetters. So that's what today's all about. This personal existence view relates to how the unenlightened mind holds the concept of a self in the mind. And this is what the Buddha referred to in the three universal truths as non-self. He's teaching that the universal truth is that there is no self. But because of the pollution of the mind, because of the way the unenlightened mind thinks, it actually thinks that there is a self or what we refer to here is the unenlightened mind thinks that there's a personal existence, that this physical body or this mind or the combination of the two are the self. Oftentimes the mind protects this self because what the self is, is it's a self-identity or self-image where the unenlightened mind because it falsely identifies this physical body and or this mind as being the self. It has this certain self-identity and this certain self-image and it wants to protect it and defend it. And that's one of the reasons why the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because that's what enlightenment is, is this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where it's never shaken up to experience any discontentedness. So as long as there's this personal existence view, i.e. as long as there's this self in the unenlightened mind, this concept of a self, this holding on to the self-identity and self-image, then the mind is never going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because as soon as somebody maybe comments on a 
piece of clothing that you wear or jewelry that you wear or maybe the way your hair looks or the body look, is getting older or fatter or skinnier or something like this because of this personal existence view this self-identity and self-image the mind's going to become discontent because it doesn't like to hear these disagreeable words from this other person who's perhaps just commenting generally or maybe they're actually being mean and maybe they have some ill-spirited intent behind what they're sharing but either way the mind that is holding on to a personal existence view isn't going to like that kind of discussion or any kind of comment or even sometimes even a certain look, right? Like somebody can just kind of maybe look at you in a certain way and maybe it has nothing to do with you whatsoever. It's just some stranger on the street. But because the mind is somewhat self-conscious, then because of this self, the mind's like, huh, why do you look at me strange? Or why did she look at me strange? Like, what, is something wrong with my clothes? Is something wrong with my hair? And the mind's going to be somewhat obsessed to try to figure out what's going on here. If there's a personal existence view, the unenlightened mind can also become quite selfish, right? We have these words in our language for a reason because the unenlightened mind holds on to a self. So someone who we would say is selfish, or if we are ourselves selfish, then we're going to tend to hold on to things close to our chest. This is my son. This is my wife. This is my house, my car, my clothes, right? Everything's mine, 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 mine. And now we become very self-absorbed and we end up sometimes trying to even control our life partner or our children or our parents people who we consider ours my mom my father right and because of holding on to this personal existence view and holding on to things very closely to the self we are causing our own discontentedness if we continue to exist in the world in this way so the elimination of this personal existence view involves first fully understanding what is the self and therefore what is non-self understanding it very very clearly more and more and more what is the buddha talking about in terms of non-self so this needs to be learned intellectually and this takes typically many, many conversations, many, many classes, reading, having maybe multiple discussions with the teacher, either privately or in class, to figure out and understand what is the self and what is non-self, and understanding this on an intellectual level. Then there needs to be some reflection to kind of reflect on this, to see whether or not it's true. And then there are certain things that you need to move into practice in order to change the condition of the mind, which we're going to talk about today. So far, we've just been kind of touching on this intellectual understanding of what the personal existence view is or what the self is. And conversely, what non-self is. We're just kind of touching on this and we can talk about it more as you guys have questions. But now kind of moving this intellectual understanding a bit that we've just talked about into kind of reflecting. 
Because what you'll do if you take these teachings and move them into reflection is you'll look inward and you'll start trying to discuss and figure out in the mind of whether what is being shared is actually true or not. So now that you understand this personal existence view and some of the things that I've shared about how this self-identity and the self-image, how if people look at you in a certain way, you might get a little bit self-conscious or there might be some selfishness where you kind of hold on to things very closely. Or if you say, this is my child, my husband, my wife, my car, you know, my clothes, the mind will become very protective and even sometimes controlling over these things. So you have to look at your life and see if these kind of things have happened to you and you've experienced this at different times in your life. And then also as part of this reflection, one of the things that I can offer to you to help you see that there absolutely is no permanent self is think about how you looked at yourself when you were a child, when you were a teenager, an early adult, and if you've gone beyond early adulthood into middle age or older, then what you probably see in terms of your self-image and your self-identity is the way you've looked at yourself, the way you've perceived yourself has been very different through all of these different ages, all these different times of your life, you looked at yourself in different ways in terms of if you described yourself as a child, as a teenager, as an early adult, as a middle-aged adult, you would describe your personality and who you are as a person very differently in all of those various stages of life. This is how you know through reflection that there is no permanent self. Because if there was a permanent self, when you are born all the way until now, there wouldn't be this constant changing of the self-image and the self-identity. There wouldn't be any changes in the personality, for example. But what I'm sure you've experienced over the course of your life is this constant change in your personality, in your self-image, in your self-identity. I bet if we looked at pictures of this physical body from your childhood to teenage to early adult to middle age, there's been this constant changing of the physical body. So if the mind is identifying with this physical body as being the self, and it thinks there is a permanent self, but yet when we look at the physical body, is the physical body permanent or is it impermanent? You can answer that, right? The physical body is impermanent. So if the mind thinks that this physical body is the self-image, is the self, and this is you, then how could there be a permanent self if this physical body itself is impermanent? Right? So you can start to reflect on this and look inward and see that there is no permanent self. And then another thing you can do as part of this reflection is you can ask yourself, you know, where is James? Where is Josh? Where is Judith? Where is Johnny? You can ask yourself, and I could ask you, point to Johnny or point to Roberta or point to Judith, right? Point to Holly, right? And most people will take their finger and they will point and they'll say, you know, here's David right here. This is David. And they'll point. Well, 
what's being pointed to is a shirt, a piece of fabric, a clothing. That's not David. This piece of fabric isn't David. So we take and get rid of that fabric or that clothing. We say, well, where's David? And then someone will typically point again. They're like, no, that's actually the skin. That's not David. That can't be David. It's just skin. So we get rid of the skin and we say, where's David? Then I might point again. No, that's the ribs. That's muscle tissue. And then we get rid of that. Where's David? And then point again. We're like, no, that's just the organs and fluid and, and blood. That's not David. So the more that the person keeps pointing, keep trying to identify where is David, what the mind can essentially come to is there is no David. David is just a label that was given to me at birth. And that was just to make it easy for people to refer to this unique combination of this physical body in this mind that has come together for this existence. What we truly have here is we have this bag of skin with bones and fluid and muscle tissue and all these other things inside of this bag of skin. But grandma couldn't ask my mom, you know, hey, did that bag of skin come home from school yet? And is he doing his homework? You know, that wouldn't work out very well over the course of my life. People wouldn't know who we were talking about if we just referred to each other as this bag of skin with bones and fluid and tissue and things like that. So we're giving these names at birth as a way to make it easy to identify what is the unique combination of a body and a mind that we're talking about. And that's what Johnny is, is this unique combination of this body and this mind, or Judith, or James, or Bassam. It's this label that was given to us at birth in order to make it easy for people to identify who it is that we're talking about. But the problem with the unenlightened mind comes in is that we start taking this name and we start to falsely identify this self-image and the self-identity with this label, with this name that was given to us. And now the unenlightened mind thinks that this is David. This physical body is David. And because of that, now we start protecting this image and this identity. Where this comes from is it comes from our previous births in the animal realm. We've had multiple, multiple, multiple births in the animal realm. And as a deer or as a snake or as a lion or any different species that we were, you know, a turtle, a worm, a fish or whatever, if we didn't have a self in the animal realm, we wouldn't survive, right? A deer walking in the forest who wasn't protecting the self and being on guard of any predators is going to die pretty quickly in the animal world. So in the animal world, the self is there to protect and sustain the life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to sustain life. But the problem is, is that our mind gets conditioned in those animal existences so that when we're born into this human world, we retain this concept of a self, this personal existence view, and now we go around and we protect this personal existence view. And when somebody infringes on the self-identity or the self-image, we get angry, we get frustrated, much like an animal. 
or we walk around very timid in the world and become very fearful of what's going on and who's going to step on us, right? Or we become very selfish, like I talked about, and everything's about us. So the self is causing all these various problems in our life as long as we hold on to it, but we don't see it in the unenlightened world. In the unenlightened mind, we just don't see it. And that's part of that ignorance or unknowing of true reality that's keeping us in the unenlightened state is that we just don't know what we don't know or we don't understand what we don't understand. So in order to eradicate or eliminate this personal existence view, this self, we need to continue to understand intellectually what is the self. We need to reflect on that and start to understand it through reflection and introspection then we start needing to move things into practice where we start practicing elimination of this self. So to practice elimination of the self or to realize non-self would be to do things like being humble, being down to earth, right? Being non-selfish is not being selfish, practicing generosity, right? Being humble and peaceful and eliminating any fear associated with the physical body to eliminate the constant interest or wanting to beautify the physical body and identifying this physical body as being the self. So there's all these different practices that we can employ in order to start to dissolve and realize non-self. There's even some meditation techniques that I help people with. Once they start moving into the jhanas, then there's a meditation technique and some ways to help to start to eradicate the self. One of the ways that we do that is through what I call disassociating with the self. The language that we tend to use in our daily life is based on what's in the mind. So right now, what's pretty normal and what's pretty common in our vocabulary and in our language is to say, ah, oh, this is my son, or yeah, this is my house, or this is my car, or this is my clothes. Someone who's working on eradicating the self and eliminating the self will start to disassociate with the self and you can start doing that through language. And by changing the language or the speech that you use, it will start to strip away how the mind thinks. So if you continue to walk around saying, this is my wife, this is my son, this is my house, I'm going to my job, these are my glasses, these kind of things, then there's this my, 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 mind, and the mind's gonna continue to hold on to the self. But what someone who's working on eliminating the self will tend to do for six months or a year is they will start to say, you know, this is, for example, this is Bailan. I don't need to say this is my son. I can say this is Bailan or this is Sarah, who's my wife, or this is where I live instead of this is my house. This is where I live or this is the car that I use instead of this is my car or this is the occupation that I've chosen instead of this is my job, right? These are things that right now doesn't come natural for the mind. And it would feel somewhat awkward or strange to start using this kind of language. 
But as you do that more and more, it will start to gradually train the mind to disassociate with this self and let go. And you'll notice that your practice will change that because you start disassociating with this is my son and you introduce this is Bailan and you recognize in the mind that this is a unique person. This is a unique being. He doesn't belong to me. He's not mine. So therefore, why would I try to control him or control his decisions? Sure, as a parent, I need to provide guidance. I need to provide support. I need to provide education to help them make decisions and guidance in their decisions, especially since my son's only eight years old. But more and more and more, what I choose to do in practice is help him to make his own decisions without me controlling his decisions right and the same thing with a life partner if you have a life partner and you refer to them as a life partner rather than my life partner then you won't try to control them or their decisions and you'll have the freedom to let them make their own choices in life and this will promote a more healthy relationship for you and then after you do this for a good six months or a year after you've already got a year or so of the basic core teachings under your belt and now you start focusing on eliminating the self after having reached the jhanas now for six months or a year you start talking in this different way and you start referring to things in a different way and the mind slowly starts to transition where it no longer thinks mine 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 and you start to see how your practice evolves and change where you're no longer attempting to control all these things. And then at some point, it might just be easier for you to go back to the way that you actually used to speak in the past because talking with people who aren't on the path, it's just kind of easier to say, yeah, this is my wife or this is my mom instead of this is the woman who carried me in her stomach for nine months and gave birth to me right? Like how else do you say this is my mom, right? So there's a few things where you can't really use the language to disassociate with, but at some point after you kind of transition the mind and you start changing the mind, it does become easier in some cases to just say, yeah, this is my son. But at that point, having gone through six months or a year of training specifically not to use my son, the mind already understands. So when I introduce Bailan to people and I say, this is my son, I'm introducing him as my son to somebody, but the mind understands because I went through this training that he's not mine. He doesn't belong to me. What we have to come to realize is what's really existing here is this physical body in this mind. That's all that really is here. There are these two separate unique things that have come together for this existence. But our language, the English language, is really ill-equipped to explain this and understand this. And because the English language and all the other languages in the world are ill-equipped to explain this unique existence of a body and a mind coming together, we use these pronouns of David or, you know, my son, you know, we refer to him in a certain way and we're using this language, but 
in terms of what the mind needs to understand to eliminate this false identification of the body as being the self, then we need to change our language and how we use language in our daily life for a particular period of time, maybe six months or a year. And then once we have transform the mind that the mind understands there is no self you've probably been working with some other techniques that i could share with you privately or in another class perhaps if we talk about just the self in the meditation practices to fully more realize non-self as you do this more and more and you come to know that yes you have in fact dissolved the self then at some point it almost just kind of makes it easier to start using the language that others are using, but the mind has been transformed at that point and understands there is no self. So this is just some background on what personal existence view is, reflecting on that, and then how to move this into practice in order to start eliminating the self. But again, if you're just starting out, I don't suggest that you start doing this yet because there's a lot of other things that you need to learn and practice before you get to this one. This is something that you would normally start focusing on once you get into the jhanas. At this point in your practice, no matter where you are, whether you're just starting or you've been practicing for a while or you've been practicing for a long time, but you're just not ready to focus on eliminating the self yet, one of the things that you can just always do is just always be humble, always be down to earth, don't be fearful of what's going on around the physical body, try to eliminate that fear and work on not being selfish. If you feel like right now you're sometimes selfish, just work on not being selfish. If you work on these things in general, you'll be working in the direction of personal existence view, but then there's gonna be some more detailed work that needs to happen later. So because this one is one that usually takes a while for the mind to wrap around, I would like to pause here and take any questions that we might have on personal existence view. As we get going here with the other ones, I'll probably do two or three of them before I take questions. But with this one, because it's so unique and it's so different, I would like to just kind of open things up and see if you guys have any questions on this before moving on. Here is a question from Emily. She says, what is the self that continues to have rebirth? And some beliefs, there is a self with a little s, and then there is a self with a capital S. The self is seen as the soul that continues to have rebirth. And she continues saying, what is the Buddhist perspective of this? Okay, so the self isn't what is being reborn. And Gautama Buddha left the teachings about a soul as undeclared. This is why we call it rebirth as opposed to reincarnation. A lot of people think that the Buddha taught reincarnation, but he actually didn't teach reincarnation. He taught the cycle of rebirth. There's a real important difference between the two. What some people believe is that reincarnation is a soul that continues to come back over multiple existences and it's essentially this permanent soul that continues into multiple existences and keeps being reborn but just with a different physical body right and that's what people sometimes say is reincarnation but that's not what Gautama Buddha taught because remember the concept of a soul conflicts with 
the teachings of impermanence because in order for there to be a soul, there'd have to be a permanent entity that's moving from existence to existence. So it conflicts with impermanence. So Gautama Buddha never taught the concept of a soul because it conflicts with impermanence. It also was specifically mentioned by the Buddha as an undeclared teaching. In the Pali text, the original source of Gautama Buddha's teachings, he lists at one point what were his undeclared teachings. And I think there's like nine things there. And he says, these are my undeclared teachings. And he talks about a soul as being an undeclared teaching. And then he says, what did I declare as my teachings? And then he talks about the Four Noble Truths. So he left the concept of a soul or any kind of teachings about a soul as undeclared. And then, of course, the concept of a soul conflicts with non-self because what the Buddha is sharing as part of non-self is that there is no permanent self. The soul is based on a permanent entity that goes from existence to existence. So he didn't teach reincarnation and he didn't teach a soul. What he taught is the cycle of rebirth. Or one of the ways that we can actually discuss this is the cycle of new existence. Because there really is nothing that actually is being reborn. There's nothing from this physical body or this mind, so to speak, that is actually being reborn. The only thing that's moving from existence to existence is craving. If there's any mental longing and a strong eagerness in the mind at the time of death, then there's going to be rebirth. Craving is the fuel that produces rebirth. So that's the condition. There needs to be the condition of craving in the mind in order for there to be a new existence. So you can think of like multiple candles lined up. And when you get down to the end of the first candle, if there's still craving, that's the spark that then lights the next candle. But if craving has been extinguished as one of those three fires, three unwholesome roots, three poisons, if craving has been extinguished, then there's no spark to light the next fire. There's no fuel to carry this spark to the next candle, the next fire. So craving is the fuel that creates rebirth. And also when there is rebirth, craving moves from one consciousness to the next. So you can think of a human existence as a cardboard box. The cardboard box represents the mind or the consciousness, right? And the new cardboard box or the new existence is a new cardboard box. It's completely new. It's got a different shape. It's got a different color. It's got a different texture. It's made up of completely different things in terms of the mind and the physical body. Well, from one existence or one cardboard box, whatever craving is still there at the end of that existence, that craving gets moved forward into the new cardboard box. That's the only thing that's moving from existence to existence. We call it the cycle of rebirth. Gautama Buddha called it samsara. Samsara is the Pali word that we use for the cycle of rebirth. We're using the translation of the cycle of rebirth, but I think that the phrase, the cycle of new existence, 
actually represents more of what's happening here because there's actually nothing that's being reborn. It's a completely new existence. When you were a fish, a snake, a lion, a worm, a bird, a deer, all of those were completely new forms and completely new consciousness. And now that you're Emily or David, it's a completely new form and it's a completely new consciousness, but it's going to retain any craving that's moving forward from the previous births. And there's oftentimes residual memories from these previous births that are in the new consciousness. This is why some people can actually observe their past lives and they know their past lives, for example, because of these residual memories that come forward into the new mind. But it's a new mind. So this cycle of rebirth, there's no self that is moving from existence to existence. It's just craving and residual memories. What the self is, is just how the unenlightened mind falsely identifies this physical body in this mind as being the self. But in reality, there absolutely is no self. And this is why the Buddha talked about non-self. One of the other things you can do to look at this is, have you ever thought yourself or have you ever talked to somebody that says, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know who I am. I need to go find myself or I need to go find my true self. And sometimes people will go out on these journeys for a year or two or a few months and travel. And the goal is to find myself. And people will say, I don't even know who I am anymore. The reason why is because there's no self. And what happens is people go on these endless journeys to find the self, but they never find it. They might come back from that journey more relaxed, more peaceful, more calm, but they never actually have found the self. They may think they have. They may come back from that journey and say, okay, now I know what I would like to do in this life. I would like to be a police officer. I would like to be a guidance counselor, or I would like to be a yoga instructor or whatever. But that's still not the self. That's just an occupation or activity that they would like to do. So the human being is actually struggling to find the self. There's plenty of people out there that think they know the self. They think this physical body or this self-identity or this self-image is the self. And the unenlightened mind is holding on to that concept. That's the problem. But in reality, that isn't true. There is no true self. There is no permanent self there. And this is why sometimes people can get into this downward spiral or this journey of trying to find a self, but they never actually find it. So the self doesn't actually exist, Emily, but the unenlightened mind thinks there is a self. And it oftentimes identifies this physical body and mind as the self, and that's where the real problem comes in. Okay, uh, thanks, teacher. Uh, a question from uh, Theresa. Uh, David, you always say not to believe it you on these teachings, uh, but uh, to go out and look for ourselves to see if we agree. How do we rebirth around us? It feels like this is a teaching that we need to believe. 
How do I observe this on my own? So I am not just believing you. Thank you. Yeah, so the cycle of rebirth, you should not believe at all. You should not believe in the cycle of rebirth. And as you've mentioned, you shouldn't believe anything I say or anything that the Buddha says. So the cycle of rebirth is something that you shouldn't believe. If you're early in your practice, I just suggest you put it to the side and don't even really think about it because there's so many other things that you need to learn and understand before you start tackling and understanding the cycle of rebirth. With that said, I'll just share that what happened in the past in terms of your rebirths, it's in the past, it doesn't matter at this point, and what may or may not happen in the future in terms of the cycle of rebirth is in the future, it doesn't matter at this point. At this point, you're a human being, there's this mind, it's unenlightened, you need to train it, and I suggest you focus on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts in developing your meditation practice. As you do that, and you determine through independent investigation that these teachings are true, and it's improving the condition of the mind, then you will see more and more of the truth in the Buddhist teachings. The mind will gradually start to awaken. There'll be more and more wisdom. And as that happens, oftentimes people start to observe past lives. They start coming to the mind and you start actually being able to observe what happened in the past. Not everybody, but for a lot of people, this does happen. So if you never focus on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path of five precepts and developing your meditation practice, you're never gonna get to the point where the mind is decreasing this discontentedness laying down this burden of carrying around craving, anger, and ignorance. So therefore, you're never going to get to the chance where you actually observe past lives. So I suggest you focus on that first. And then at some point in the future, there's opportunity for you to investigate this cycle of rebirth. And that would be a better time because you'll have digested more of the teachings and seen more of the truth in terms of the core teachings before tackling this cycle of rebirth. So that's what I suggest for you at this point is just set it to the side because there's nothing that I can give you in just a two minute answer to a question to help you understand the cycle of rebirth. After you learn in this group learning program, by the time we get to, I think it's around chapter 22, if I remember correctly, either 20 or 22, we talk about the evolution of the animal consciousness into the human consciousness. But that's after you've already learned for about 20 weeks or so in this group learning program that now I can start introducing you to more understanding of the cycle of rebirth and we'll spend an entire class on it. But right now, just set it to the side. That's the best thing that you can do until you gain more understanding and wisdom through independent verification of the core teachings. Okay, uh, here Emily continues saying, so uh, is there any purpose to our lives? This goes into something that I cover in the frequently asked questions section. I would like to be sure we stay on topic here because we have a lot of things to discuss. There's an answer to this that you can find in the book, Developing a Life Practice. Look in the frequently asked questions section and you'll see that I answer it in there. Okay, a uh, question from Manal. She says, Teacher David, 
Would you please speak about if the concept of self is at all related to shyness? Is a sense of self hyper guarded when one experiences shyness, nervousness, especially when asked to speak about their inner experiences, emotions, and opinions? And she continues saying, would working on eliminating the sense of self assist it in eventually eliminating shyness? Great, Manal. I'm glad that you're seeing that. And the answer to the question is yes, the self plays a big role in shyness because shyness is usually a fear and anxiety over being perceived a certain way by people around the individual. And this is why the individual becomes shy because there's this protection of the self-image or self-identity and the mind isn't interested in being perceived in a certain way and it becomes very fearful and this is part of the problem that when there's a self the mind becomes fearful and not only is there shyness but there's oftentimes fear of death as well when there's a self and you've got to actually eliminate the fear of death in order to attain enlightenment so eliminating the self not only helps with shyness but it helps with eradicating this fear of death as well so absolutely eliminating the self is going to help the mind be peaceful calm serene and content with joy because it no longer identifies this physical body and mind as being a self therefore there's not going to be any kind of fear in talking or sharing opinions or sharing views because you know that there is no self here that you're just sharing opinions and views and you're not going to be overly concerned about how people are perceiving you in the world that you're just going to share your opinions and views okay uh, thanks teacher uh, no more questions on zoom for now okay so let's go on to a couple of these other ones talking about what they are how to reflect and how to actually practice in order to eliminate these the second one here is typically described as doubt but in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path of Leads to Nibbana, I added these other words, doubt about the teachings. And remember, there's various layering of teaching here that is kind of normal the way that the Buddha teaches. It's also the way that I teach too, where I take you through different layers of understanding. In Developing a Life Practice, I talk about this as doubt about the teachings because the goal in this book is to help you start focusing on the teachings and developing this independent practice where you're seeking guidance with a teacher, but you're independently proving the teachings on your own so that you can acquire wisdom without any kind of belief whatsoever. But what doubt about the teachings is, is having doubt that these teachings of the Buddha will actually lead to enlightenment. And if you're just starting out on the path or even you're six months in or a year in or two years in and you maybe haven't seen the progress that you would like to see maybe with other teachings that you've been encountering and practicing, then you may have doubt. And I think that doubt initially is actually quite helpful because it helps you to ensure that you're not believing the teacher. But what you need to do as you evolve and as you learn those three universal truths, four noble truths, eightfold path, meditation, focusing on the five precepts and things like this, is you need to see how these teachings are slowly guiding the mind to practicing 
teachings more and more that start to eradicate this discontentedness in the mind. And as you see certain situations that once made you very angry, now you just kind of get irritated, then you just kind of get annoyed, and then that same situation can happen and the mind isn't shaken up at all, it's still calm and peaceful, then more and more and more, you should start eradicating this doubt that these teachings are actually guiding you on this path to enlightenment to an improved condition of the mind. So you've got to slowly get to this point where you see more and more truth in the teachings. And the way that you eradicate this is through investigating the teachings, which is part of the seven factors of enlightenment, is by you investigating the teachings through books, podcasts, online classes, having personal discussions with your teacher, through you going off into the world, observing whether these teachings are true, and then practicing and seeing the condition of the mind gradually improve. Doubt about the teachings should start to slowly erode over time that as the condition of the mind improves, you should get to a point where you have no doubt that these teachings are leading you to a better existence, to a better condition of the mind. You might not be enlightened yet, and you won't be enlightened yet if you haven't eliminated all 10 of these fetters, but you should be getting to a point as you move into the jhanas that there's such a difference in terms of clarity of mind, in terms of concentration, in terms of focus and memorization, and your practice has evolved that you're getting more and more clarity and you're like, you know what, my life a year ago or my life three years ago was completely different than it is right now based on me having chosen to learn and practice these teachings I can see night and day where the condition of my mind is improved. Sure, the mind's not enlightened yet, but you have no doubt that these teachings are guiding you on a path to an improved condition of the mind. So that's what it means to eliminate doubt about the teachings. It's not that you just believe things and you just click your fingers and say, okay, I have no doubt about the teachings. It's actually that you prove it through practice, through investigating the teachings and you see the truth more and more because you see the condition of the mind improving. So that's what doubt about the teachings are. But as you might recall, if you participated in the class when I talked about the five hindrances, I expanded this doubt to more fully encompass a deeper level of understanding that is shared as the Buddha kind of pulls back more and more about what he was really talking about when he talked about removing doubt. Because what he talks about is he talks about having confidence in him that he was the actual fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. And in order to attain enlightenment, you would need to have confidence in him. And of course, on day one, you're not going to have that. But as you learn and practice these teachings and see the condition of the mind improve, and you know it's his teachings that did that for you, you'll gain more and more confidence in him. And he talks about having confidence in the teachings, which is what we just talked about and how to actually do that. He talks about having confidence in the community or the Sangha, right? That the community of practitioners are practicing well and that this is a community that you see being polite, kind, friendly, respectful. And this is a community that can support and encourage you on this path having confidence in your teacher, that you see qualities in your teacher and you feel like, yeah, the way that they're communicating, the way they're sharing the teachings, 
the way that I see them practicing the teachings, I have confidence that this teacher can guide me in attaining enlightenment. And then lastly, you have to remove any doubt that you have about your own ability to attain enlightenment because the opposite of doubt is confidence. So you need to have confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment. And right now, if you're just starting out on day one, you might not have any confidence whatsoever. But as you learn and practice, which is the way to eliminate this fetter, is through investigation, through investigating the teachings and actually learning and practicing, and you see the condition of the mind improving, you should gain more and more confidence that yes, the Buddha was definitely enlightened, Yes, his teachings definitely are guiding me to an improved existence. Yes, this community is practicing well, and I see the politeness, the kindness, the friendliness, the respectfulness. Yes, my teacher has been helping me and guiding me and supporting me, and I see that their guidance is helping to improve the condition of my mind. And yes, I've been able to do this. As an individual practitioner, you're seeing the condition of your mind improve. So that's how you remove this doubt is by investigating the teachings, gaining more and more wisdom, and improving the condition of the mind. And as that mind improves and you see your life improving, then you will remove slowly any kind of doubt that you might have about the teachings or these other five areas of doubt that oftentimes comes into the mind. This third one we call wrong grasp of behavior and observances. What this one is about is if the mind believes that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is going to lead to enlightenment, then the mind will never attain enlightenment because it has the wrong grasp of behaviors and observances. It thinks that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is what's going to create a better life for you. And... Rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is not going to change the condition of the mind. And the way that you know this is that if you've been part of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, well, are you still angry? Do you still have frustration? Do you still have annoyance? Do you still have irritation? Do you still have guilt, shame, or fears? Do you still have boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, right? Did those rites, rituals, ceremony, and worship help you eliminate any of that stuff? We're not talking about whether that stuff is right or wrong. We're not looking down on that stuff and saying people are wrong for doing those kind of things. But there needs to be an acknowledgement and an understanding in the mind that those things aren't leading to enlightenment. What enlightenment is, is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent. It no longer experiences any discontent feelings. The condition of the mind has changed through wisdom. And this wisdom that has been acquired gradually improves the condition of the mind. Rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't going to help you acquire wisdom about the natural laws of existence to change the condition of the mind. It's just rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So if the mind thinks that, for example, bowing to a Buddha statue is going to help you get enlightenment, that's a rite, ritual, ceremony, or worship. If the mind thinks that sprinkling water 
on you is going to help you attain enlightenment, then that's a right ritual ceremony and worship. And there's various things in the world that some people do that they think if they do this activity, something beneficial is going to happen for them. You know, if I pray, for example, then by me praying and praying and praying, then some beneficial result in terms of more money or a new boyfriend, a girlfriend or children or a new job is going to instantly come into my life because I've done this right ritual ceremony or worship. And what the Buddha is teaching is part of this fetter, as part of this pollution of the mind, is if the mind believes that this right ritual ceremony or worship is going to change the condition of the mind, then you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment because you're not going to be understanding that there needs to be actual practices that you actively employ in order to change the condition of the mind. You need to actively employ these practices in order to change the condition of the mind where you eradicate craving, anger, and ignorance, for example where you practice things like loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, generosity. A right ritual ceremony or worship isn't going to change the mind to all of a sudden instantly be more loving or more kind or more compassionate. A right ritual ceremony or worship isn't going to change your speech so that you're more polite and more respectful to the people around you. A right ritual ceremony or worship isn't going to stop you from having sexual misconduct, for example, or from taking substances that cause heedlessness. You can't just do rites, ritual ceremonies, and worship and change the condition of the mind. This would be a wrong grasp of behavior and observances, and that needs to be eliminated from the mind in order for somebody to really truly understand that there needs to be this active, dedicated approach to learning teachings, to reflecting on them, and then moving them into practice to change the condition of the mind. And as you do that more and more and more, you're eliminating this wrong grasp of behavior and observances. And you're also removing doubt about the teachings and you're also eliminating the personal existence view as well. This fourth one, central desire. This is one of the primary problems that Gautama Buddha talks about throughout his teachings. He talks about how the mind has this craving through the six senses. And the mind has this mental longing and strong eagerness or this craving, this desire for pleasant feelings through the six senses. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact. And the mind is the sixth sense where... The mind wants to see things that are pleasing and agreeable. The mind wants to smell things that are pleasing and agreeable. Taste and hear and feel in the body and also have pleasing thoughts all the time. The mind wants this. And as long as the mind is longing for these pleasant feelings through these six senses, then it's going to experience discontentedness because the mind is conditioned on these external things. And it can't get all these external things all the time. So it's also going to experience painful feelings like sadness or anger or frustration, irritation, because it's basing the inner feelings and the inner condition of the mind on all these external things. And these external things aren't permanent. So therefore, the mind, if it longs for pleasant feelings, 
then it's welcoming and it's inviting in these painful feelings as well. So there needs to be the practice of breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity as the way to eliminate this primary problem of craving through the six senses. We're going to go into this in the program a lot more detail about how to practice breathing mindfulness meditation, how to employ generosity. Those are what's going to help to soften this craving so that you can ultimately extinguish it. But then there's also identifying attachments or identifying the craving as they're occurring so that as they're occurring, the mind can cut that off and let it go. And we're going to talk about that in this program as well and how to actually obliterate this craving at the root so that the mind is no longer longing through these senses because as long as it does, it's going to cause itself to be discontent. And then the fifth one here is what we call ill will or hatred or anger. This is how the mind becomes very hostile or aggressive, having resentment, frustration, irritation. This is where the mind pushes things away. What craving is, this central desire that we talked about, craving through the senses for pleasant feelings, this ill will or this hatred or this anger is actually just the opposite. Where central desire or craving or clinging, we're trying to pull these central desires close to us because we want them in order to feel comforted and feel these pleasant feelings. But if we don't get those pleasant feelings, then what the unenlightened mind does is it actually pushes things away. This is the ill will, the hatred, the anger. So if your children or your life partner or your neighbors or your business partners are doing the things that you want them to do and the things that you expect them to do, then you get these pleasant feelings and that's good. But as soon as somebody does something or says something that's disagreeable, that you disagree with, then the mind will tend to push them away and create a wall. And the mind thinks that if I just push these people out of my life or I push them away from me, then that's going to solve the problem. And now I have this little bubble that the only people in my bubble or in my tribe are people who agree with me and agree with my points of view and agree with my opinions. But if somebody disagrees, then I'm kind of looking out for that. And when I see that, then the mind's going to push them away maybe becoming hostile or angry or aggressive, right? And this is also from our animalistic background as well. But this ill will actually is causing issues because the more people that you just keep pushing out of your life and pushing out of your life and deciding that you don't want to have them in your life, you're just creating the people that you can get along with based on the people that you agree with and who agree with you and then all these disagreeable situations and disagreeable opinions, you can't associate with them and have them in your life because they disagree. And this is actually not allowing you to have open relationships and healthy relationships with all people, whether you agree with people or whether you disagree with people. And this ill will by the unenlightened mind creating this wall and this barrier and pushing people away, it thinks that it's actually creating a peaceful life because you're pushing away all the people you disagree with. And ah, now I'm back to my little bubble and I feel good. But then as soon as another person starts to disagree or have a different opinion or does something that you disagree with, 
you're going to push them out of your life and push them out of your life. And you just keep going through this over and over and over again. And it just causes problems in someone's life. In order to eradicate this, the mind needs to practice loving kindness meditation. And it needs to practice loving kindness in daily life. Because the opposite of ill will is goodwill. Loving kindness is active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. The reason why the mind has ill will is oftentimes the mind is judging others and saying, I either agree with that or I disagree with that. If I agree with it, you can be in my life and we can have a relationship. But if I disagree with you, then I've got to push you away because I disagree with you because I'm judging you, right? So what loving kindness is, is, is to have active goodwill without judging, without judging people. And if you develop this loving kindness meditation practice, which we're going to be teaching this Wednesday in a few days, and you start practicing loving kindness in your daily life, then if someone agrees with you or they disagree with you, you can have a peaceful conversation. The mind can recognize that it's impossible for everyone in the world to agree with you. It's impossible because of impermanence. You can't have 100% of the people agree with you 100% of the time. That would be impossible. That's permanence and that doesn't exist. So the problem isn't that this person disagrees with you and you need to push them away. That's the unenlightened mind misunderstanding the real problem. The unenlightened mind thinks the problem is this other person. And it thinks because this other person is disagreeing or isn't doing what you expect, you've got to get rid of that problem by pushing them away. But the real problem isn't that person disagreeing with you. The real problem is your expectations. The real problem is your judgment. Your real problem is that the mind isn't comfortable with impermanence. The mind wants this permanence of everybody has to agree with you and your opinions. And when the mind doesn't get that, that's when it pushes this person away because it thinks that person and their opinions or their behavior is the problem. And it has to push it away in order to feel like it's got some level of peace. But it never actually gets to the peaceful experience because every time another person comes that disagrees, you have to just keep pushing away and pushing away and pushing away because you never solve the real problem. The real problem is the ill will in your mind and the lack of understanding of impermanence. And once you understand impermanence and you get comfortable with people can disagree, people can have a difference of opinion and you can peacefully coexist, whether people agree with you or disagree with you. Now you can have a relationship with all people because you're no longer judging whether this person is good or bad or whether you agree with what they think or what they say or what their actions are, you're no longer judging them. You can just have active goodwill, which is having an interest in seeing others be well and be peaceful. And you can get to that place through learning more and more practices of the Buddha and through transitioning the condition of the mind where you can now peacefully coexist with all beings. And that's what it means to practice loving kindness, which we'll talk about more on Wednesday. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on doubt about the teachings, 
wrong grasp of behavior and observances, central desire, or ill will. Hi, David. I had a question about the fetter of sensual desire. Is the elimination of this fetter more about eliminating the craving for pleasure rather than the experience of sensual pleasure itself? Yes. What you're doing is you're eliminating the longing and strong eagerness, like you say, the craving, the desire, the outward seeking for satisfaction, where the mind is attached with this longing and strong eagerness. Like, I've just got to have that piece of chocolate cake when I get home. I've set it aside and I just can't wait to get home and have that piece of chocolate cake. Well, when you get home and you realize one of your children or your partner has eaten the chocolate cake because they didn't realize you set it aside now the mind's angry why did they eat my chocolate cake and now the mind's discontent well there's nothing wrong with the chocolate cake there's nothing wrong with eating the chocolate cake there's nothing wrong with even enjoying the chocolate cake when you're eating it the problem is is that when the mind longs for it, it has this strong eagerness this longing this yearning for it when it doesn't get it then it's going to experience these painful feelings, this anger, this frustration. So the training here is to train the mind to no longer have this longing where it expects all of these pleasant things to always be happening through the senses. It craves this permanence of all this pleasantness through the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the ears, the bodily contact in the mind. Because as long as it keeps craving these pleasant feelings through these six senses, that's not permanent. So therefore, it's going to experience painful feelings. So you can train the mind to enjoy something that you see or enjoy something that you smell or taste or feel on the body or something that you hear, like good music or something like this. You can even train the mind to enjoy certain pleasant thoughts that you have but you don't want the mind to hold on to it. You don't want the mind to cling to it. You don't want the mind to welcoming it in where it now holds on to this stuff so tightly that it expects it all the time, craving permanence externally through these six senses and wanting these pleasant feelings because as long as the mind welcomes it and tries to hold on to it, then it's inviting in these painful feelings as well. Thanks. And in regards to the second fetter, I was wondering about the distinction between doubt about the teachings and questioning the teachings and what role, if any, faith can play in our practice. Very good question, James. So I encourage all students, all practitioners to ask questions, to really investigate the teachings, to try to understand the teachings more and more so that you can then independently practice them to see if they're actually true and if they're leading the mind to an improved condition. Questioning and asking questions to seek clarification and understanding is not doubt about the teachings. That's investigating the teachings, which you'll see is part of the seven factors of enlightenment. You would have to investigate the teachings in order to get to enlightenment. So asking questions and seeking guidance is not doubt about the teachings. And you could even say to me someday, you know, David, I kind of doubt what you're sharing with me. I really don't feel that that's accurate. And you can disagree with what I'm sharing in terms of teachings. 
that's completely fine, right? There, there's no problem with that whatsoever because if I understand that you do have doubts or you disagree or you have a difference of an opinion, now we can politely and respectfully talk with each other and I can help you see more and more and provide you more and more guidance to help you clarify and understand the teachings. But if you never expressed your lack of understanding or your doubt, like I think it was Emily or somebody just talked about the cycle of rebirth and said, hey, I don't even know how I would ever approach this. Like you tell me not to believe in the cycle of rebirth, but it seems like there needs to be belief there, right? Like it's important that you speak with your teacher and say the things that you have doubt about or say the things that you disagree with so that you can get more understanding. But don't just hold on to your disagreement just to hold on to it. The teacher's role is to provide you guidance as you seek guidance to help you see more clearly. So be ready to move off of your disagreement through clarification and understanding. So that's investigating the teachings. Doubt is just that you just have no doubt whatsoever that the teachings are going to lead to this beneficial result of enlightenment, but you only are going to get there through investigating the teachings and seeking guidance. And that's going to involve questions and asking questions. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without ever asking a teacher a question because the teacher doesn't know what's in your mind and what it is that you need understanding about. You would need to seek guidance in order to get further clarification. So investigation and questions are very important. In terms of faith, you'll see in the Buddhist translations that we have of the Pali Canon, there's a lot of translators who use the word faith. They will talk about how the Buddha said you need to have faith in him. I don't use that word in any of the translations that I use because faith is oftentimes thought of as belief. And if you look up the actual definition of faith, it talks about belief. And the Buddha never ever said, just believe me, just believe me. This is true. Just believe me. He never, ever said that. He instead said, come look for yourself. Come experience this. Come on in. Roll up the sleeves. Let's discuss it. Let's investigate it. Let's make sure that you're able to essentially independently practice this to discover the truth and acquire wisdom. He never asked for anyone to have faith in him. He asked that people develop confidence right? You have to develop this confidence through the investigation. So there is no faith. There is no belief in this path to enlightenment. But this doubt, in order to eradicate it, because most people have doubt, in order to eradicate it, you've got to actively engage to investigate the teachings and then practice them in daily life so that you can see their truth. When I really started diving into the Buddhist teachings through these books, Buddha Wajana, these I knew were the words of the Buddha, or at least I thought they were, but I didn't know for sure because all I had was a book in front of me. You know, I didn't know the whole path of 2,500 years ago of how this book actually ended up in my hand in terms of this book saying that they are the teachings of the Buddha. So when I first started learning, I had doubt. I thought that, you know what, these may or may not actually even be the teachings of the Buddha. But that was a healthy doubt because it taught me not to believe and it taught me to instead to investigate and actually practice. So that's what doubt about the teachings is, is that you 
roll up the sleeves, you eliminate this doubt, but you can only do that through investigation and it doesn't involve any kind of faith or belief whatsoever. Thanks, David. Let's get a basin now for our same questions. Well, uh, there's a question here from uh, Holly. She says, is eliminating in will something that happens gradually or suddenly? Yes, all of these fetters are eliminated gradually. All of them. Everything on this path is all gradual. Whether that's learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, eightfold path, all those basic teachings, even developing your meditation practice is something that happens gradually. So eliminating these 10 fetters are something that happens gradually. And it starts with intellectually understanding what are the 10 fetters. So this talk that we're having right now about the 10 fetters, it's not the only time you're ever going to need to learn about what they are, how to reflect on them and how to eliminate them. There's going to be a, a lot of revisiting of this. This is that layered approach that you need to take in terms of your learning and understanding and developing your practice. So that's why here at the beginning of this group learning program, we're going through and kind of I'm sharing a whole bunch of the teachings with you kind of in a month's time frame. But then we're going to hit all these teachings again throughout the next six months at different times. We're going to be layering more and more to make sure that you understand the teachings more and more. And then even at the end of that six months, you're still going to need to be learning and learning and deepening and deepening your understanding. So all of this stuff is happening gradually, including the elimination of ill will. Okay. Yeah, thanks, teacher. No more questions now. On Zoom. Okay. So let's move into the higher fetters. Now that you guys have an introduction to the lower fetters, talk about the higher fetters. The desire for form, the sixth fetter, this is the way that the mind craves to have an existence in form as being a human being. So the form is a human being in animal. Those are the two, what we call form realms. And the mind can actually have a desire for existence, for example. And this is where the mind oftentimes has a fear of death, that because the mind is holding on, having this longing, a strong eagerness, or this craving for existence, desire for form, then because of that, there's usually a fear of death. And if there's a desire for form to be human, then you're going to be holding on to this material world and you're not going to be able to let go. And there's going to be fear. So the mind needs to get to a point where it no longer experiences the desire for form that if you died right now in this moment, you're completely okay with that. And you may not be there at this particular point and you most likely aren't, but as you evolve to develop these teachings more and more and these practices more and more, you get to the higher fetters where eventually you get to the point where you no longer have a longing with a strong eagerness to exist in this form. You know that this human form, this physical body is impermanent. There's nothing here to hold on to. And holding on to this is only going to cause the mind to be discontent more and more and more. So the mind gets training and it learns to let go of all these cravings. You still take care of the physical body. You still make decisions to ensure that the physical body's healthy, but you don't hold on to it and 
crave to exist in this world because as long as you have craving to exist in the world, you will exist. There will be continuous rebirth. So you've got to get to the point where you no longer have this desire to be either in the animal realm or the human realm. And the same thing with the seventh fetter, desire for formless. This is where the mind can have desire to exist in one of the formless realms like hell, afflicted spirits, or heavenly realm. There's a lot of people in the world that have a desire to die and go to heaven. Well, if there's this desire for existence in one of the formless realms, then beings in the heavenly realm are still in the cycle of rebirth. They haven't attained enlightenment yet, and beings in heaven can actually fall back down into one of the other realms and the problem just continues with more and more discontentedness through multiple existences. So the mind needs to get to the point where it no longer has desire for form and it no longer has desire for the formless realms, including hell and afflicted spirits, because there's people who even have desire to be reborn in hell, believe it or not, or afflicted spirits. There are people in the world that have those feelings. And if there's a craving for existence, then there's going to be fear of death and there's going to be continuous rebirth. So someone who's eliminated these two fetters will no longer have a fear of death whatsoever, whether they die right now in this instant or not, or they die 10 years from now or 30 years from now, it doesn't matter because they know that this body needs to die and this body and mind needs to separate and it's just a fact of life. It's just part of the, the natural laws of existence. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And there's no need to be discontent or sorryful that this is going to happen. There just needs to be an acceptance that it's going to happen. And when it does, to have eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance so that there is no longer rebirth in any of these form or formless realms. The eighth fetter is conceit. This is the arrogance, pride, judging, measuring and comparing that you are either superior or inferior to other beings. This is what we oftentimes refer to as part of the ego, right? This arrogance, pride, this judging others, judging your own self, right? or measuring and comparing that you're superior or inferior to others. This is going to produce problems in your life because if you walk around arrogant around others with ego, you're not gonna be able to have open, healthy relationships with others. And conversely, if you walked around feeling inferior to others, then that's going to cause problems as well because when you're around people who you deem as being above you, you're going to perhaps be shy, you're gonna be uncalm, you're gonna have anxiety, right? The mind's gonna be shaken up because you're putting people above you. If you're walking around with pride and this arrogance, then that's going to cause problems in relationships as well. It's gonna come out in your speech and your actions. And if you have judging, where you're judging others to see if they're better than you or they're worse than you, then that's going to cause problems for you because it's going to come out in your speech and your actions. So you need to eliminate this conceit. Personal existence view and conceit together make up what we call the ego. 
During Gautama Buddha's lifetime, the word ego didn't exist. He described these two aspects of the mind that we've decided to combine, right? But it actually is helpful to separate it and see these as two separate distinct things that the personal existence view, this selfishness, this self-identity, this self-image is part of the ego, as well as this arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, and comparing as superior and inferior is also part of the ego, what we refer to as the ego. So the ego needs to be dissolved in order to attain enlightenment. Because if somebody walked around with this self, or if somebody walked around with conceit, it's going to get in the way. It's going to cause problems. Your speech and your actions are going to come out in a way that inhibits you from having open, healthy relationships with all people. So eliminating personal existence view in this fetter of conceit would completely dissolve the ego and the human being would be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because they're practicing just being humble and seeing all people as equal rather than walking around trying to judge everybody of whether who's good and who's bad, right? This ninth fetter we call restlessness. This is like an overactive mind. This is like a confused mind. This is a restless state of mind. This is the opposite of singleness of mind. So if the mind is trying to multitask and doing multiple things at one time, the mind is very restless and it's very overactive. It's not having singleness of mind that it can just focus on one thing at a time. Because remember, part of the benefits of enlightenment is this clarity of mind, this concentration, this focus, this deep memory. If the mind is overactive and it's jumping from topic to topic to topic to topic to topic, and it can't focus on just one thing at a time, it's restless, it's never going to experience this concentration, this clarity, this focus, this high degree of memorization. It's never going to experience that in this enlightened mental state because of this restlessness. So you've got to bring the mind and make it more calm, make it more peaceful. Whenever you see that the mind's being overactive, you need to slow it down and you need to relax it so that you can just develop singleness of mind and just do one thing at a time. Okay. And then lastly here, the last fetter is we call ignorance or I refer to it as the unknowing of true reality. Most people will refer to it as ignorance, but a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha wouldn't call somebody ignorant or wouldn't call someone stupid because these are like derogatory terms that we use. But I'm using this word ignorance because that's what you're going to see in most places. Some people also use the word delusion or confusion, but I like to use the term unknowing of true reality. What this fetter is all about is how the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't understand the three universal truths. It doesn't understand the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. It doesn't understand the natural law of gamma. There's lots of things that the unenlightened mind doesn't understand, like impermanence. And someone who's eradicated this ignorance would have fully dedicated themselves to learning and practicing these teachings to independently see the truth 
and gain more and more wisdom. Wisdom is the antidote to ignorance. And as the mind awakens, what it's really truly doing is it's acquiring wisdom. We say that it's awakening, and it is. It's getting closer and closer to enlightenment, to this light. But what's really happening is the mind's becoming more and more wise. And that's how you do it is through learning and practicing the teachings, seeking guidance, not believing anything, but independently determining the truth in the teachings by actually practicing the teachings and seeing the truth for yourself. And someone who's eradicated ignorance not only would understand the teachings intellectually, but they would actually be practicing the teachings. There's plenty of people in the world who might understand the teachings intellectually, but if they haven't moved the teachings into practice, then you're still going to see things like wrong speech or wrong view, or you're still going to see them getting angry or hostile, or you're still going to see them being sad or irritated or annoyed, right? So for someone to have eradicated ignorance, while it requires intellectual learning and the acquisition of wisdom, there would need to be this practice where you see that they're calm, they're peaceful, the mind's serene, they're content, the mind's joyful, the mind is able to explain the teachings in a very easy way that others can understand. You would be able to see that they're, not only their wisdom is very deep and profound, being able to understand the teachings, but their moral conduct in the way they actually practice the teachings in terms of right speech, right action, and right livelihood are all very well refined and they're practicing those teachings very closely. And you would see that their mental discipline, the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration is just always there, that you never see them discontent whatsoever. And they are never discontent in their private life. If they're on their own, they're never feeling awkward or socially awkward. There's no anxieties. There's no fears. They're never worried about what they're going to do in life. They're never bored. They're never lonely. All of these different things. Because by the time someone's eliminated all 10 of these fetters, the mind is enlightened. And in order to get to this enlightenment, ignorance is one of the most important things to eradicate through training the mind to acquire wisdom. But it's not just intellectual wisdom. It's actually seeing that this wisdom has changed the actual practice of the individual, that they've developed this life practice where there's no longer any discontentedness whatsoever. And they're able to very easily and fluidly exist in the world without any complications. They might have challenges. They might have things that they need to face in terms of uh, certain aspects of their life that they need to apply good decision-making to to improve their life, but they're completely able to do that with the wisdom that they have. They don't see things as problems. They just see the challenges. They are not burdened by the various things that happen in life. They just see the things that happen in life as impermanent and now let me just apply some wisdom to improve the situations that exist around them, the challenges that they're facing, and by applying good decision-making, they know that any situation that they're encountering can all be resolved through just good decision-making. So this is the upper fetters or the higher fetters. Do you guys have any questions on any of these?
I was wondering, David, about the separation between lower and higher fetters and what is the significance of that and if there's any significance in general in the order of the fetters. Yeah, we're going to talk about how these fetters lay out in terms of the four stages of enlightenment next. But the lower fetters are the ones that you need to eliminate in order to move through those first, second, and third stages of enlightenment. And then in order to attain the fourth stage, which is where the mind is actually enlightened as an arahant, you would have had to eliminate not only the lower fetters, but the upper fetters as well. Even though these fetters can be eliminated at different times, like for example, someone could eliminate ill will before they ever eliminate personal existence view. That's possible. Someone can eliminate ill will before eliminating doubt about the teachings. That's possible. But in general, if you kind of track along this path in terms of progressing as they're laid out, it actually is quite helpful that if you eliminate personal existence view and as you're doing that, you're working on doubt about the teachings and wrong grasp of behaviors and observances, these first three fetters need to be eliminated in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. So if you focus on those primarily once you get into the jhanas and you focus on those first, then once you get those three eliminated, then it becomes easier to work on four and five. But in reality, just like when you built your practice based on those core teachings of universal truths, four noble truths, eightfold path, five precepts and developing meditation, you're kind of dialing in all that stuff at one time. You're not really working just on right speech. You're not working just on right action. You're kind of working on all this stuff at the same time early in practice. As you get into the jhanas and you start eliminating these 10 fetters, you're really kind of working on all of them at the same time to a certain degree. But you will benefit from really focusing on the grouping of lower fetters and upper fetters individually. And you'll even benefit once you see the next part that I'm going to talk about where you can see how each of the stages of enlightenment group these fetters differently. If you kind of focus on them in those groupings, you'll find it a bit more straightforward to learn and practice that way. Thanks, David. Now let's get back to Basim. Okay. Uh, there's a question here from my Holly. She says, does the Buddha say anything about what happens when one escapes the cycle of rebirth? He, of course, talked about enlightenment and what he described as enlightenment. But in terms of once you attain enlightenment and die, he left that as an undeclared teaching of if there is any kind of afterlife or any kind of existence after you attain enlightenment and die, he left that as an undeclared teaching. Okay, thanks, teacher. Uh, no more questions for now. Yeah, so you've got to get to the point, Holly, where not only is there not craving for form or formless realm, but there's also not craving to know what's next after enlightenment. And one of the things that I've said before is that when you eliminate all this craving, not only the craving for form or formless, not only to know what's next after enlightenment, but even eliminating the craving for enlightenment itself, right? If someone craves enlightenment itself, then they're never going to attain it. So you need to get to the point where there's this goal, this objective, this interest to learn and practice to attain enlightenment and experience it. 
but there's not this longing with a strong eagerness because as long as there's this longing and strong eagerness, even for enlightenment itself, the mind will never attain enlightenment. So this longing and strong eagerness to know what's next after enlightenment, if that exists in anybody's mind, that will actually inhibit them from actually experiencing enlightenment because there's this still this craving to know what's next. So the mind has to get to the point where it doesn't even care what's next. Not only have you eliminated the fear of death, but you don't even care what's next at the end of this life. That would be to eliminate any desire to know what's next after enlightenment. And one of the things that I share with people is that once you attain enlightenment and you're experiencing enlightenment, the mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And that mind is like that permanently with no discontentedness whatsoever. The mind is so peaceful and you're experiencing so much peace in this present moment that you don't even care what's next. If there is anything next, right? The Buddha never shared it. So by focusing on the core teachings and training the mind to come into the present moment and experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where there is no discontentedness, the mind is not only not going to fear death anymore, but it doesn't even care what's next because if there is something next, it's either as good as what you're experiencing now in the enlightened mental state, which is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with no discontentedness, or it's better. So we don't know what's next, or at least it's not something that I share. But if there is something next after enlightenment, it's either going to be as good or better. But you don't want to crave to know what's next, because as long as there's that craving, then there's going to not be enlightenment and there's going to be rebirth. So just wanted to add that on there for you. So now that we have a, a general understanding of these fetters and some of the things that we need to do in order to eliminate these fetters, which you're going to need to revisit all of this stuff as you get closer and closer to the jhanas. But now that we understand it to this level of detail, let's go to the next part where we talk about the four stages of enlightenment. There's four stages, which are stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. Arahant is enlightenment. These other three earlier stages are not yet enlightenment, but there's lots of benefits associated with these other stages. And then there's an individual called a Buddha. A Buddha isn't an actual stage of enlightenment, but it's an actual individual, which we're going to talk about as part of this as well. So it's not the actual stage of enlightenment. And the last Buddha currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago. And the world is unaware of any Buddha that has existed since his lifetime. But it's not a stage of enlightenment. A Buddha is actually an arahant. But we're going to talk more about what a Buddha is as we get going here. But let's look at each individual stage one by one. So this first stage of stream enterer. The first stage of stream enterer would have eliminated the three lower fetters. The stream enterer would have eliminated the first three fetters of personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong grasp of behaviors and observances. And in order to have done that, they would, again, already understand those core teachings, the three universal truths, four noble truths, eightfold path, 
five precepts, the natural law of gamma. They would have a really well-developed meditation practice. And a lot of other things would be really clicking that they would have already entered into the individual four jhanas, which are these four phases that we talked about in our last class. And the mind would now have focused on eliminating these first three fetters. And now the mind would be in this first stage of enlightenment called stream enter. And we call it stream enter because the Buddha talked about attaining enlightenment, like entering into the stream, like a, a river. And this stream essentially leads to the ocean, the ocean being enlightenment. So once you've kind of stepped into the stream or you've entered the stream, you're going to attain enlightenment at some point, either in this life or some future life. Once you attain the first stage of enlightenment, the mind will not regress from that point. You will never go back to doing things the way that you used to in the past once you've attained this first stage of enlightenment. In the earlier parts of practice, if you give up or you stop meditating, even when you're in the jhanas, the mind can revert backwards. But once the mind is in the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter, the mind won't regress backwards, okay? As a stream enter, you will either attain enlightenment in this life as you will continue to progress through all the other stages of enlightenment, or if you die in this first stage of enlightenment, then there will be no more than seven more rebirths directly back into the human realm, and you will attain enlightenment on some subsequent birth. So if you die as a stream enter and say this was your first existence, then either in that second, third, fourth, so forth and so on, you will attain enlightenment at some point. It's just a matter of time. Right? In this stage of enlightenment, discontentedness has been decreased significantly, but there's still discontentedness. Because here in this stage of enlightenment, notice that there's still ill will. So this person's still going to be getting angry. There's still going to be some hostility. There's still going to be some resentment. But they've cleared up a lot of the challenges in the mind through eliminating these first three fetters. From there... The individual is then going to start focusing on the fourth and fifth fetter. And here, this is central desire and ill will. They'll start thinning this out. And what thinning out the fetters mean is that in the earlier parts of your life, for example, if we use this one of central desire, one of the primary central desires that we have as human beings is the desire for sexual contact. What people will see as they start thinning their sensual desire is they'll see a decrease of interest in sex and they're not as interested. And even when they have sex, it's not as pleasing as it maybe once was at an earlier part in your life. So there's this thinning of interest in sexual contact. Maybe in one part of your life, you had three, four, five, six partners and you were moving around from partner to partner to partner, where now there's this thinning of the sensual desire and there's just one partner and there's just one healthy relationship. And even in that particular relationship, there's not this overly excessive craving of got to have sex every day, every day, every day, or something like that. It's just been thinned out. And there's other sensual desires, of course, but I just use this one as an example. And likewise, 
this fifth fetter of ill will has been thinned as well by the time someone's moved into this second stage of enlightenment as a once returner where there's still this anger there's still some resentment but it's been softened significantly this person as a once returner isn't going to experience rage they're not going to experience uncontrollable anger they're going to get angry they're going to get frustrated they're going to get irritated and they're going to know that they're frustrated and irritated but it's not going to be uncontrollable rage like they might experience earlier in their life at some point so this ill will has been thinned where with a large part of the world they're practicing loving kindness and compassion but there's still some people in their life you know kind of a handful of people that they just have resentment for but the vast majority of the world they have loving kindness and compassion for but there's just some people that they just feel like they just can't get along with because they're still holding on to a little bit of this ill will so this would be a once returner and a once returner having gotten to this stage of enlightenment would come back to the human realm just one more time because they have some residual craving and clinging that they need to eliminate from the mind in order to get to full enlightenment so if somebody attains the once returner in this life and they die they're going to come back to the human realm one more time and in that existence they're going to attain enlightenment do you guys have any questions on these two stages of enlightenment there are no questions at this time david okay so let's talk about the next two stages the next stage is called a non-returner this is someone who actually doesn't come back to the human realm but if you die in this stage of enlightenment you'll actually be reborn into the heavenly realm but remember the heavenly realm isn't the final goal it's not the ultimate goal there's still existence in the cycle of rebirth it's not the goal to actually attain the stage of non-returner and be reborn in heaven but instead the goal is to attain enlightenment as an otter hunt but a non-returner would have eliminated all the five lower fetters all those five lower fetters will be completely obliterated from the mind there is very little discontentedness whatsoever and when it does occur it's happening very infrequently and it's very minimal it's almost like living in heaven on earth that there's a, an enormous eradication and elimination of discontentedness but there's still some discontentedness here and there maybe once every three months once every six months once a year the mind is experiencing some discontentedness because there's still some residual craving there's still this holding on there's still as you see these upper fetters there's still this desire for form potentially there's potentially desire for formless there's still this conceit or arrogance this judging this measuring and comparing there's still this restlessness potentially of this active mind this lack of singleness of mind and there's still some ignorance they still don't quite fully understand all the teachings and they haven't fully moved all the teachings into practice yet so that's why there's still some residual discontentedness that it happens periodically but it's less frequently and when it does occur there's less intensity for someone to attain this enlightenment as an arahant then they would have eliminated all the ten fetters and once you attain these other stages 
that's the time to then start focusing on the higher fetters. So you can always be working on ego, right? Because this conceit is arrogance and pride, this measuring and comparing, this judging, this one is one of the most challenging for most people to eliminate. So even now, early in your practice, wherever you see arrogance or pride or measuring or comparing or judging of others start to arise, you can cut that off and eliminate it. There's still going to be some there and the fetter itself isn't eliminated, but it often takes many years to eliminate the conceit in the mind. So you don't necessarily have to wait until you attain the stage of non-returner to start focusing on something like conceit, which is part of the upper fetters. Instead, you can be always actively vigilant in working to eliminate this arrogance or this conceit that we talk about. And the same thing with restlessness. When you see the mind is overactive or there's no singleness of mind, you can actually be working on that now even though you're not at these other stages of enlightenment, you don't have to necessarily wait to work on some of these things. You can actually be incorporating some of them as you go and kind of dialing them in more and more and more. Do you guys have any questions on either non-returner or arahan? Yes, teacher. Uh, a question here from uh, Holly. She says, is there a way to know what stage we are in or this is something we don't need to know? The answer is yes, there is a way. These stages of enlightenment are for your personal development purposes so that you can kind of plot your plan. It's kind of like a map of helping you go from point A to point B. However, with that said, the mind is ill-equipped with trying to figure out for yourself, right, yourself, where you are on this path. Because the ego, this conceit, this arrogance, this pride, it doesn't get eliminated until the very upper stage, the highest stage of enlightenment. So that means all the way up until one attains enlightenment, there's essentially going to be arrogance, pride, measuring, comparing, all these kind of things. So the ego's kind of always there telling you that you're more enlightened than you really are. This is why a lot of times people get into the jhanas and they think they're actually in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, when in reality, they're still in the jhanas because the ego has kind of taken over this arrogance. So the individual themselves are ill-equipped to actually determine whether you are enlightened yourself or not. It's actually other people. This is why the community is so important to be practicing within a community of people that understand enlightenment because they can help you to understand where you are on the path and help you continue to progress because everyone in the community should be interested in seeing more and more and more people attain enlightenment because the more people in the community that attain enlightenment, the better for everyone because then all of us can be helping each other to progress on this path as people reach out and seek guidance. So trying to determine if you are enlightened yourself is really fraught with errors. And even when you know that you no longer experience discontentedness for two, three, four years, for example, I encourage people to never even consider yourself to be enlightened. Because as soon as you consider yourself to be enlightened, that's typically when the arrogance will come in. That's when the pride will come in. That's when the sluggish mind or complacency will come in. 
And if any of those things come in, then the mind's not enlightened, right? If there's sluggishness or complacency or there's arrogance or pride that, hey, look at me, I'm so enlightened, then the person's not enlightened. So in terms of helping you and using this as a resource, it's more of like plotting your steps and providing you a map, but you really need kind of like a GPS, so to speak, to traverse this path And your teacher in the community is like your GPS to kind of help you as you reach out and you seek guidance. And teachers have training and understanding of how to determine if there is a self or not. Somebody that has a self would have somewhat of challenge to determine if there's still a self there or not. Someone who has ego would have a challenge to determine whether there's a self there or not. Someone who has ego might even have a challenge to determine if there's ill will or central desire there. So that's why self-assessment on this path is just fraught with errors and why you need to involve other people on your path, like a teacher and be part of a community so that we can ask you questions, we can observe you in practice and your teacher can provide you guidance as you seek guidance to help you eradicate these. But most people will never actually tell you, like a teacher never will really tell you with full intention that you're actually enlightened. Because as soon as you convince yourself that you're enlightened, then that's when the arrogance and pride comes in. We sometimes tell people that they're actually enlightened just to see how their mind reacts. Because if somebody tells you you're enlightened and you get excited, then we know you're not enlightened. So sometimes teachers say things and we share things with you in order to see how the mind responds. And we won't actually say that you are enlightened. We might say things, well, it appears that you could be enlightened. And then we kind of observe how that person reacts to the situation of hearing that they're actually potentially enlightened. And if they become excited or they become arrogant or egotistical over a period of time, then we know that they're not enlightened yet. And that's something that we actually will help them work on. So us teachers will sometimes skillfully say things to try to uncover whether there's still a self there or whether there's doubt about the teachings, or whether there's still central desire or ill will, or any of these fetters, we have ways of, without you even realizing what we're doing, to kind of test, so to speak. And we only do that out of loving kindness and compassion for the student and the practitioner. We only do that to help you because we're interested in seeing you progress on this path. And what a teacher is doing is essentially diagnosing whether there's still a self here or whether there's still ill will or whether there's still conceit or restlessness. And we're just kind of assessing whether these things still exist, because if they are, we would like to help you with teachings and guidance to eliminate those things so that you can attain enlightenment. And this is why a relationship with a teacher is so important, because you have to have trust and confidence in the teacher because sometimes you're gonna hear things from the teacher that your mind might not like. It might be disagreeable to you. If your teacher tells you, you know, you still have ego. You need to let go of that ego. There's too much arrogance there. And that might hurt you, especially if there's still ego there. That might actually hurt, but you're causing that pain yourself. 
the teacher's role is to provide you guidance, but this trust and this relationship that form over many years between the student and teacher is so important because the teacher's job isn't to tell you all these pleasing things that just please your mind. The teacher's job is to help you root out all the uncomfortableness in the mind because that uncomfortableness is what's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. The goal is to get you to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that no matter what is being said around you by whoever is saying it, your mind is always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So there needs to be this trust in both directions and this respect and this gratitude in both directions between teacher and student so that you feel comfortable with receiving feedback from a teacher that can tell you, yeah, there's still ego there. You need to work on that. I still see some arrogance or however else a teacher might choose to communicate that to you. I had a quick question, David. Sometimes when we become very interested in the teachings, yet we still have ego, the teachings and the path can become a part of our identity and become a part of our ego in a sense. Do you have any questions on how to avoid this pitfall? This is something that I talk about in the frequently asked questions of the book, but I'll talk about it here too, is all these labels of Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, all these different things, and all the other labels that we assign, right? Like African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic, Pacific Islander, Asian, all of these different things, all these labels, you know, gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, all these different things, Republican, Democrat, or whatever your political affiliations are in your country, so many different labels. All these labels do is they serve to bolster the self. They serve to create more and more of a self because the mind starts identifying with these various labels. And what I suggest and specifically with your question, James, about the teachings, is don't even consider yourself a Buddhist, right? If someone asks me sometimes if I'm Buddhist, sometimes I'll just say yes, just because it's easier for them to understand. But in reality, I don't even consider myself a Buddhist. And I don't think Gautama Buddha considered himself a Buddhist either, because the term Buddhist didn't even exist during his lifetime. It didn't exist until after his lifetime. So if we adopt this label of I am Buddhist, well, that I is the self. Or are you Buddhist? Well, there is no you, right? That's the self. So there is no I, there is no you, there is no me. That's just the mind holding on to these labels. So what I consider myself is just a practitioner of the teachings, of the Buddhist teachings. But in reality, if you ask me, I just say I'm a human being. You know, what are you? I'm just a human being, right? I'm not white. I'm not Caucasian. I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm not gay, straight, homosexual, heterosexual, transgender, all these different labels that people assign. I'm just a human being and we're all the same. So instead of identifying as being a Buddhist or a Buddhist practitioner, I suggest people just get rid of all these labels and just focus on being a good human being. And being a good human being involves having wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, moving along this path, not judging others, and viewing all people as equal. Thanks, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. Okay. 
So let's talk about what a Buddha is, okay? This isn't a stage of enlightenment. It is an actual individual. A Buddha has actually attained enlightenment. So they've actually gone through and they understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths, all those things I've been saying today are the core teachings, as well as the natural law of gamma, the three poisons, the how to eliminate the fetters, all these other things. They understand all these different things, but they actually attained this eradication of the 10 fetters through their own efforts. They didn't have the guidance of any teachers whatsoever on this path. They actually figured it all out by themselves. And that's what Gautama Buddha did. He went out into the forest and he figured it all out and he attained enlightenment on his own. That's one of the key criteria of what a Buddha is. Now, he did study with two teachers prior to going out on his own, but when he learned and became a teacher in the first teacher's teachings, he commented about how his mind was still discontent. Even though he had learned all that teacher's teachings and that teacher made him a teacher and he could actively teach that teacher's teachings, he commented that he said, my mind was still discontent, even though I had learned everything that teacher taught me. And then he learned from a second teacher and he became a teacher of that teacher's discipline as well. And he said, but my mind was still discontent. So even though he had learned all these things, it never led to enlightenment from these two teachers. So then that's when he finally decided to go out on his own. So those first two years of his journey, he was studying with these two teachers, but it never led to enlightenment, right? So then when he went out on his own for the preceding four years, a total of six, that's where he ultimately gets to enlightenment. He discovers these teachings on his own. He observes these natural laws of existence through his own observations, through his own practice. He actually evolves to the point where he completely eradicates discontentedness of the mind. And he knows that because he's no longer experiencing discontentedness. And then eventually he comes back and starts teaching. So not only does a Buddha attain enlightenment on their own throughout their life without the guidance of any teachers. But then the second criteria is that they declare certain teachings and they share those teachings. The reason why they declare teachings is because they attain enlightenment on their own without the benefit of anyone else. So nobody else in the world at that point understands the teachings that lead to enlightenment as that particular Buddha does. He understood the teachings in a unique way that nobody else during his lifetime understood. So he declared through 45 years of teaching, what are the teachings that led to his enlightenment? The enlightenment that he experienced over those six year journey, what were those teachings? And he declared those over 45 years of his life and he shared them with more and more and more and more people which led to the enlightenment of countless other people during his lifetime. So that's the second criteria, is that you, a Buddha is going to declare teachings and lead countless other people to enlightenment during his lifetime. Then the third criteria is that once the Buddha dies, this individual is going to leave the teachings in such a condition that countless other beings attain enlightenment after their death. 
So these are the three primary characteristics that help us to identify a Buddha, someone who attains enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers, someone who declares teachings and shares them with countless people during their lifetime, leading to the enlightenment of countless people during their lifetime. And then they leave the teachings in a condition that once they die, there's countless other people after them that will attain enlightenment based on the teachings that they declare during their lifetime. So those are the three primary characteristics, but there's also many other characteristics of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. One of the reasons why we know Gautama Buddha was a Buddha is because he attained enlightenment by himself. He declared and shared teachings where countless people knew that they had attained enlightenment because their mind no longer experienced discontentedness. And he left the teachings in such a condition that countless other people over the last 2,500 years have also attained enlightenment. And that's how we know because the people that are versed in his teachings and have experienced enlightenment, they know that this person was an actual Buddha. They have no doubt that he actually was a Buddha. Some other things that a Buddha experiences that is unique to this individual is that they have a profound memory. Their memory is able to recall details of very detailed aspects of their current existence and of their past lives. A Buddha has such a profound memory beyond that of which an average human being would have. A Buddha can recall countless details about their current existence and their past lives as well. Their memory doesn't get overwritten like an average human being. When you were growing up as a child and teenager, early adulthood, right now, there's kind of a blip of a memory perhaps here and there that you can recall from your childhood that you could talk about, but you wouldn't be able to explain countless details about your childhood right now or your previous lives because your memory gets overwritten. It's like a hard drive that once it gets to a certain capacity, it just gets overwritten and overwritten and overwritten. And you kind of have just a certain amount of capacity to actually remember. But a Buddha, this individual, their mind doesn't get overwritten. It's almost like there is no capacity. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. And they can just add more and more and more and more wisdom. And they can retain all of this understanding. And this is what makes a Buddha such a profound teacher is that they can remember so vividly, not only their life, but they can remember the actual teachings themselves. And they can very deeply teach because their memory is so profound that they can accumulate and hold on to the wisdom that they experienced during their enlightenment. So as they progressed in their own enlightenment without the help of any teachers, they were acquiring more and more wisdom and they're able to retain this wisdom and then share it in a very deep and profound way because they never get to a capacity in their mind. Essentially, this profound memory is actually what leads a Buddha to become a Buddha. A Buddha doesn't actually set out to become a Buddha. They don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I would like to be a Buddha. Let me go try to be a Buddha. What ends up happening is the individual 
when they embarked on their journey, like when the, the Buddha actually started learning and practicing the teachings with these two other teachers, he didn't know he was a Buddha at that time. That's the reason why he was seeking guidance with teachers, because he didn't know he was a Buddha. All he knew is that he had this highly discontent mind, and he was interested in solving that discontentedness. And he went to these two different teachers to try to solve the discontent mind, and it didn't solve it. And because nobody could give him the answers that he needed, that's why he went out on his own and embarked on his own journey. And eventually he discovered the teachings. And at that point, when his mind awakened to enlightenment, that's when he realized he was a Buddha and he had discovered it on his own. But prior to that time, he didn't know he was a Buddha. Initially, his mind was experiencing so much memory that that's one of the reasons why it became so discontent. But then once you embark on this journey and this individual attains enlightenment, the mind is now purified and they have this deep, profound memory. The problem that motivated them and pushed them into actually attaining enlightenment on their own actually becomes an asset as a Buddha. Because now this profound memory that they're able to understand all of this wisdom and acquire more and more wisdom, they're now able to use that in the benefit of their students to now be able to actually share the teachings and teach in a very deep and profound way to help countless people during their lifetime and then beyond after their lifetime. So this profound memory and the ability to remember countless details of their current existence and past existences is one of the other criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha. And it becomes the problem of this memory that motivates them into attaining enlightenment actually becomes an asset upon their awakening to enlightenment. A Buddha can, because of their deep wisdom, can actually quickly determine the condition of another person's mind through interacting with them, they can actually determine, is there loving kindness? Is there compassion? Is there sympathetic joy? Is there equanimity? Is there generosity? Is there right view? Is there right intention, right speech, right action, right on down the line? Because they understand the teaching so well, and they had to eradicate all of these fetters and everything else on their own, that when they're in the presence of another person, they can very quickly observe whether this other person has certain defilements or certain unwholesome qualities or whether they actually have wholesome qualities. And what a Buddha will do is they will provide teachings and guidance to help this person to improve the condition of the mind if this person asks for guidance. A Buddha is not going to go around and order people to practice his teachings. They're not going to push people or force people to practice their teachings. But once someone chooses to learn and practice with a Buddha, that Buddha will be able to very readily understand the mind of other people and then support them, encourage them, and help them to learn and practice the teachings. So essentially, this ability to assess somebody's mind, it comes from a place of loving kindness and compassion that they're interested in helping this person, not as a way of judging them 
or putting themselves above or below, because remember, a Buddha has eradicated that, an Arahant has eradicated that. They only assess people's minds and look at people's minds as a way to help them through loving kindness and compassion for all beings. But they would only do that if the person asked for guidance and support. During Gautama Buddha's lifetime, people didn't necessarily know he was a Buddha. You know, some people did, and as he taught more and more, more and more people started to know he was a Buddha. But early on, you know, people didn't necessarily know he was a Buddha unless they had learned and practiced his teachings to attain enlightenment themselves. And this is actually one of the assets and benefits of a Buddha is that nobody actually knows that he's an actual Buddha. So now he can more clearly see people's minds. So during the lifetime of a Buddha, there were people who got angry with him. There were people who disagreed with him. There were people that tried to argue with him. There were people that had ego and tried to come on top of him. And because people didn't know he was a Buddha, then he was able to very clearly see this. Because if everybody knew he was a Buddha and there was like some grand announcement in the world and it was they announced that there's this Buddha, well, then perhaps people, some at least, would be very observant. They would be on their good behavior. They would kind of put on a certain veneer when they're around the Buddha. And he wouldn't be able to very clearly see their mind. So one of the biggest assets of a Buddha is that nobody knows that he's an actual Buddha. And this allows that individual to more clearly see people's minds and help assess their mind and then help to give them teachings when they seek guidance to help improve the condition of their mind. If everybody knew who the Buddha was, then he wouldn't have this asset to help diagnose and assess people's minds through clearly being able to see their mind because people aren't putting on this veneer around the individual that we know of as the Buddha. So this ability to understand people's minds, observe their mind, and provide them teachings is an important asset that a Buddha would have. And then lastly, even though there's other criteria, this last one that I would like to share is a Buddha is a very deep, 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 deep practitioner of their own teachings. They will be leading by example. They will be a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. A Buddha will not teach everybody to do one thing and then do something completely opposite, right? They're not going to teach people what right speech is and then have wrong speech. They're not going to teach people to eliminate ill will and hostility and then have ill will and hostility. They're not going to teach people to eliminate arrogance in the ego and then have arrogance and ego, right? A Buddha is going to be a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. And that's how people learn their teachings is not only through their discourses and their guidance, but through observing this individual actually practicing the teachings, almost like an example or a role model. And that's one of the strongest ways that a Buddha will actually teach is just by leading by example. So let me stop here and see what questions you guys have on anything related to what a Buddha is. Looks like we have no questions at this time, David. Okay. Well, being sensitive to the time and observing where we are in time, I'm actually, even though I 
thought to include the seven factors of enlightenment in today's class, I will postpone it for another class session because we were already going to cover this in chapter three, but I had planned to spend a little bit extra time on it today. But considering the topics that we're discussing today, I'm seeing that I kind of bit off more than I could chew, that this is kind of like too much to talk about in just one class is the 10 fetters, the four stages of enlightenment and the seven factors of enlightenment to the level of detail that I was interested in talking about these at. So I'm not attached and hopefully you're not either to the seven factors of enlightenment and actually talking about those today. What I would rather do is just postpone that for another class where we can dive into those in more detail. So with that said, let me just at least advance the slide so that you can see what the seven factors are. And you can see that these seven factors, they're in chapter three, and you can look at them there. But at some subsequent class, I'm going to teach the seven factors of enlightenment to a more depth. And probably when we get into chapter three, because that's only gonna be about another three weeks from now, maybe four weeks from now, and I'll probably talk about it then, okay? So with that said, I will just thank you for joining today's class. Thank you and share my appreciation and gratitude for you taking the time and effort to learn these teachings and practice these teachings in your daily life. Because the more and more that you learn and practice all these teachings of the Buddha, the more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy that your mind will become the less harm that you're going to be causing in the world and the more peaceful that this world's going to become. I realize that these teachings of the Buddha are not necessarily easy to learn. They're also not necessarily easy to practice because if they were easy, everybody would already be enlightened and the entire world would be like heaven on earth because there'd be all these enlightened beings walking around. But that's not where we are in the world. So I know that these teachings aren't easy to learn and they're not easy to practice, but they're also not difficult either. I wouldn't consider them difficult. There's definitely lots of effort. There's definitely lots of time that needs to be employed to learn these. There's definitely lots of energy that we need to expend in order to learn and practice these teachings. But with some dedication and some confidence, you can learn and practice these teachings. And even when we bite off something really big, like we did today, talking about the 10 fetters and the four stages of enlightenment, and you might leave class thinking like, wow, there's just so much to learn here. Well, hopefully you see that as a positive, that yeah, wow, there's a lot here that the Buddha taught over 45 years of teaching. So yeah, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot to reflect on and there's a lot to practice. But in doing so, it's going to gradually improve the condition of the mind and gradually improve your life. And this can actually be really fun. It can be really enjoyable to learn because no matter how old we are in our life, we often sometimes think that, ah, I've got this thing figured out. I remember at age like 25, 28, I kind of thought that I had this life kind of figured out. And what I soon realized as life went forward is I really didn't have much figured out at all. And it can be pretty refreshing 
to kind of be in kindergarten again or to be in first grade or third grade again and just focus on the basics. So that's what we're going to do starting next Sunday is we're going to start in chapter one of this book, Developing a Life Practice. And what you're going to start seeing is you're going to start seeing daily posts in the Facebook group, Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. In fact, those daily posts have started today where every day you're going to see a black image where it talks about the group learning program. And I'm going to be posting a section of this book in the Facebook group. And today what I am started posting is the preface from the book. So what I would suggest from this point is that you read the preface of the book if you haven't already done that. And you take the time this week to learn the preface and you start reading chapter one as well. Because on Sunday, I'm going to do a talk about chapter one and help you to understand chapter one and take any questions that you have on chapter one. So if you've read the preface and you've read chapter one before class, then you're going to get more out of the class itself. But if you prefer to come to class first and then read afterwards, you can do that as well. Or you can do it both ways. You can read before class. You can have the class and ask questions. And you can also read after class as well. Some people like to do it that way. These posts that I'm making in the Facebook group, you can read them if you want. It's just the content from the book that I'm splitting out and posting day by day by day. But the main reason why I'm making these posts in the Facebook group is it's an opportunity for you to ask any questions. So I'm giving you all these opportunities, all these resources to learn from, and all these opportunities to actually ask questions. So you can post a question anytime in the Facebook group about anything you would like to ask questions about. But also by me posting these posts every day, it's kind of a reminder for you to be sure you read the book, but it's also an opportunity for you to ask any questions that you would like on those posts. So feel free to use the Facebook group as kind of a central hub to gain access to all the resources, to watch the live streams, to watch the online classes, to ask questions and seek guidance with me. The way the Facebook group is set up is members aren't teaching each other. They're just asking questions and seeking understanding in the teachings. And then I share that with you in the Facebook group. So we're kind of now about a month into this group learning program. And now we're going to officially start with each individual chapter. And this is where you might start being interested to read the chapters. You will attend the live classes. You might even watch the videos or listen to the podcast from the previous classes that I taught on each of the individual chapters. You might decide to take the quizzes. You might decide to use the audiobook to read. There's all these different resources. And if you truly digested all the resources, it would actually be a full-time job for you. So if you're retired or you're out of work, this can be your new full-time job. But if you are working and you have a family and these other things that are part of your life, you just decide which things you feel that you would like to engage with. Is it the reading? Is it the classes? Is it the audiobook? Is it the quizzes? Is it the personal guidance? Is it, you know, what is it? And you decide what mix of these things you start interacting with in order to learn and practice the teachings. It's totally up to you because it's your independent journey and only you know 
the amount of time, effort, and energy that you have to devote to all these different resources of the classes and so forth to learn. If all you ever did is showed up to these classes on Sunday or Sunday and Wednesday, that's great, lovely, glad to have you, wonderful. If you decide to go beyond that and you decide to read or listen to podcasts or the audiobook or take the quizzes or what have you, wonderful, great, glad to see that. If you decide to reach out and schedule some personal guidance and schedule those appointments with me, great, wonderful. I don't have any expectation of you. I'm not requiring anything of you. I'm only providing the guidance and the resources, and it's up to you to decide what things you would like to engage with. So thank you for your dedication. Thank you for choosing to learn and practice these teachings. Thank you for choosing that Gautama Buddha's teachings are something that can be beneficial for your life. I'm here to help you. You just decide how you would like to progress with all these different resources. So I'll either see you on next Sunday where we're going to be talking about chapter one, or maybe perhaps this Wednesday when we're going to be teaching loving kindness meditation in our Wednesday class, or if you're participating in the Saturday classes where we're learning the Pali Canon in English, I may see you there as well. But in the meantime, Have a lovely rest of your day and remember to treat everyone polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Until then, Sawadika. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.